I want to congratulate College Church on your 125th anniversary. That is an impressive milestone. First, I want to thank College Church for the role that you've played in my life personally and in the life of my family over the last six months. Back in April of this year, we learned that my oldest sister was diagnosed with cancer. We were given a pretty grim uh, outlook. And over the next six months, we watched her health deteriorate until it ended just a couple of weeks ago, exactly like they said it would. Throughout that journey, uh, we have been uh, sustained by not just the prayers, good as they are, but the physical presence, the words of encouragement, the scripture, sometimes the gifts of members in this congregation. Outside of the word of God, which I heard in the mornings, and the people of God, which I saw again and again throughout the day, I would not have been able to help carry that weight. But because of you, um, we are doing okay. About a month and a half before Jackie died, we were standing in the living room, and um, she was starting to reflect on what it was going to be like when she actually saw Jesus Christ with her eyes. She said, I, I've always heard about him, and I've spoken to him, but I've never seen him with my eyes. And I wonder what he's going to look like. <clears throat> it's a pretty heavy moment. And in that moment, I asked if when she saw him, it would seem like she'd seen him before. She said, where? I said, in the body. It's in the body. Christ is physically tangibly present in the body. You'll see things in his face and hear things in his voice, maybe that you saw in ours or you heard in ours. I cannot think of a higher compliment to pay a local church than that. You have beautifully reflected the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. Churches get large, and sometimes they get um, a lot of attention. But I can speak as one, like many of you, uh, that was affected by college church in the smallest, most cellular level. And there's a time in your life when it doesn't matter how um, strong the church is, if they're not there for you, but you were there for me. And so I thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, of all the things that you have thanked me for. Uh, you have done far more for me than I could ever do for you. I wish there was a better way uh, to say it, but I am so thankful. Thank you. Um, now, can I congratulate us? It's been 125 years most churches live 70 years and then they die. There is anywhere between four and seven different stages in a church's life. There's usually a pretty quick ascent. And then about 15, 20 years in, most churches hit their peak. They stay there for about a decade to a decade and a half. And then they go into a slow descent. And afterwards, they just survive. Most of them 
die. A few of them hang in there uh, forever and they never die. The ones that die, which as I say is most of them, generally die for one of two reasons. Either first, they never changed when they should have. Or second, they did change when they shouldn't have. When I say they've never changed, I mean they found early in their lives a level of success and they tried to repeat it again and again and again. They thought they could find a plateau and then hold on to it. But because the river is always moving, what worked in one generation doesn't in the next. And so their leadership and their vision and their methods got older and older as the church did and it became irrelevant. And when I say they did change when they shouldn't have, I mean when they started to grow, things got complex and nothing strangles growth like complexity. As the congregation got larger, they started adding features to the church to make more and more people happy. And like one of those remote controls that now has about four and a half billion buttons on it, so that you can't find the three that you actually need, churches become just laden with all kinds of ideas and programs. And in the process, they lose the heart and soul of who they are. If churches are going to continue to thrive, especially in this day, we will have to recover what some call the founder's mentality. That is, when the founder started that organization, what was the spark of genius? What was the vision or the light that was in that person's eyes? And what was the simplicity, the one or two things that they wanted to do and they made all other things serve that? That's what gets lost. To answer that question, I went back to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus Christ, our founder, used the name church for the first time. He started with a question. Who do the people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist you're a preacher. Others say you're Elijah, a social reformer. Others think that you're Jeremiah, like this wise old sage with fire in the mouth. And still others think you're a good prophet. But you, said Jesus, it's emphatic in the Greek, but you, who do you say that I am? And Peter with this rare moment of uh, insight. He was never this good before. Up to now, he's blown about everything he's put his hands on. And in a moment, he says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when he says that, he moves Jesus into another category. 
You are not just a preacher, and you're not just a social reformer. You're not a political activist, and you are not just one of the prophets or a wise old man. You are in a different league, all your own. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was through the word that all things were made. Nothing was made that he did not make. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's who Jesus is. And when Peter gets it, he says something no disciple has said up to then. Jesus hears the seeds of a church. Jesus says, and you're Peter, and upon that rock, that confession, what you just said, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. He didn't invent the word. He borrowed it. The Romans and the Jews were already talking about church when Jesus came along. The word ecclesia means to call out. And so the Romans were using the called out ones to describe a political gathering in the central rally where they would cast votes for the next election. The election was the calling out. It was a government project. The military used the word ecclesia, the calling out, to describe men that were drafted into the army. So whenever there was an uprising, the emperor could call them out like a militia to squash the uprising. So there was a political and there was a military understanding of church in the Roman world. In the Jewish world, it always meant an assembly, a gathering, a physical, actual, local, regular gathering of people. Sometimes for religious purposes, sometimes for political purposes, or social purposes, or spontaneous reasons. But it was always a physical, tangible, local, actual gathering of people. This is important because it means in Jesus's mind, the church was never just an idea. It was never just a theology. It was always an assembly of people that were physical and local, and flawed, and sometimes weird. But when they came together around the statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus was going to build his church. And have you noticed where he's going to build it? at the gates of hell. 
seems like a strange place to plant a church. But what he says is, I will call together an assembly of ordinary people right at the gates of hell. And it will be so powerful that hell will not have anything to overcome it. Wow, what a statement. In Jesus' mind, hell was not just a lake of fire. It was a place of death. And so wherever you saw chaos and division and inequity and prejudice and violence and dis-ease, you saw hell. Wherever you saw human life being diminished or held hostage, you were seeing the powers of hell. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm gonna build an assembly of ordinary people right outside the gates of hell. And it will become so powerful that hell will not be able to withstand it. He did not envision Christians holding on to heaven with hell on their backs. He envisioned Christians beating down hell with heaven on its back. Do you see how different this is? From the gatherings we have today in what we call church, Jesus was far more aggressive and radical in the thing he called for. You are on the offense. You're winning. Then, to close it, Jesus makes this weird, cryptic statement that goes like this. He said, and I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of God. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And when every Protestant hears that, they just go, it's a hard verse to understand. That's not what he meant. Let me talk that one down a notch or two. It is a hard verse to understand, and it means lots of things, but it means at least this for Catholics and Protestants. What happens on earth and what happens in heaven are connected. If you do something on earth, it is done in heaven. You must not think of heaven as a place that comes later after you die. You must think of heaven as a place that is already active in the place where you live. And the actions that you are taking affect what is happening in heaven. The space that you occupy with your physical body right now is a part of heaven. You are already 
living in two worlds. This one and that one. So you must not think that if you do everything right, you will get to heaven. You must think heaven has already come and you are already living now to a small degree. Well, you'll live larger in heaven. But it is not this completely disconnected world that you've grown up thinking. I guess what I'm saying is the church is indissolubly bound to heaven. Now, it is a colony of heaven at the gates of hell. That's the lesson for today. Now here's what it means. In the morning when I wake up and start to pray for our church, I worry. I know, I know what the Bible says about worrying. You're going to write me this week and tell me you shouldn't worry. But you, when you're trying to lead or help lead an organization that is so much richer and deeper and more storied than you are, when every meeting you call has people smarter than you in it, you start to worry. And I worry about whether we'll be as strong going forward as we have been in the past. I worry that sometimes in churches like College Church, there are personalities that can arise that become more popular than Jesus. I worry that someday maybe Jesus will not be the most famous person in the church. He is today. But his name will not be, I fear, the one that we use the most. Can I just tell you from my heart, we must keep making Jesus famous. Can we stop talking about the church as if it were an organization that runs primarily on human talent? Human talent matters. But the oil is the favor of God. And favor is divine luck. This is the church that Christ is building, not somebody else. However much we love and appreciate them. I worry sometimes that our agenda will drift from you are the Christ, the son of the living God, onto some other agenda, whether it's evangelism or whether it's social justice or whether it's the latest trend in society, I worry that churches shift agendas over time because they want to stay popular and relevant. Can, can I tell you, we 
have no answer better than Jesus. We don't. If the gospel seems to you to be irrelevant, it might be because you don't understand the problem. But once you understand the real human dilemma, Jesus is the most relevant discussion in the world. The only way to stay relevant is to say things that are eternal, not trendy. And this is that thing. Jesus is in a league of his own. He is not just a prophet or a preacher or a social reformer. He is the son of God, the firstborn over all creation. And the more we exalt him, the more relevant we get. And third, I worry sometimes that we'll build the church apart from hell. When Jesus intended, we would build it at the gates of hell. I worry that over time, churches become parochial, traditional, like encased in their rituals, in their language that nobody understands anymore. And so that's why when I saw the baptisms this morning, I mean, did it happen to you? My heart came alive because these were people whose personal lives were affected at one time by the powers of hell and Christ has broken them free. And that's when the gospel is the best. It is not a lecture. It is a power in this world. And there is nothing more compelling than a changed life. So far from building this kind of tradition that we protect with all of our rules and policies, oh, I want us to be a church that is messy and active Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always busy at war with hell. Always. This is why we have so many people active in the community right now. This is why there's a discipleship movement where people are making disciples in once secular businesses. This is why... We have the immigrant connection right now. The first year we had it, I think we had five different people. That's it, the entire year that we're trying to find legal pathways. Now on the third year, we have over 40 who are somewhere in the process to finding pathways. Why? Because the answer to injustice is not more shouting. It's a quiet, firm resolution to live right. Quit bragging about it. Just do it. And fourth, last, sometimes I worry that the church will lose all its beauty and its mystery in all of the talk 
about mission. Yes, we are the body of Christ, but we are also the bride of Christ. We do have a mission, but we are also a mystery conceived by the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus Christ himself, the church is human and the divine. People, we've not always gotten this right. We've had some really bright, shiny days. We've had some really hard days. There have been times when we've been ahead of the curve. We were speaking of civil rights back in the 1800s. A small group of people who founded this church worked with the Quakers to invite Frederick Douglass to come into Marion, of all places, and lecture on civil rights in the mid-1800s. And their names are in the original registry here. It's incredible. But there were seasons in our life when we were not that bright. We were silent in the 1960s when the streets were on fire. We were not silent last summer when they were on fire, but we were the first time. We've had tremendous leaders in the history of our church way before um, I came. And I'm trying to follow in that path that they made, but we've had too many leaders. Of the 38 pastors that have led this church, 21 of them were here for three years or less. <laughs> it's hard to do something when you're always revolving in and out. But over the years, our church has been a history of a long obedience in the same direction. What we're learning is that one church like this one, doing one thing well, like the gospel, in one essential place, like the bridge between South Marion and higher education, long enough, like 125 years. If we do that, we can budge the earth toward heaven. Let me ask you three questions before I go. One, what are you most proud of when you think of College Church? Two, what do you worry about when you think of College Church? And three, what do you hope for when you think of College Church? Now, if you've been coming only a matter of weeks, you can still participate in the discussion. In some ways, you'll have a perspective that everyone else needs to hear. And if you've been coming a long time, you can kind of track the church over the years and how it has changed. But as your answers evolve and as you talk about these things, it would really help us if you would write some of them down, if you let us see them. Because after all, the vision of our church is not something that we hear on a mountain and then hand down to you. It's something that rises from the people itself. So as God speaks to you around these questions, would you please take a few notes and send them our way? Father, 
It is always a privilege to be part of anything that you are doing. And there's a sense this morning that you are actively involved in our church. This is something we are more grateful for than proud of. Now help us to carry it well, to steward its place in this community and in the greater church. Empower us to serve the present age in Jesus' name.